This will be our last Sunday in Jonah. Unless you don't do everything we've talked about, and then we'll just start over again. <laughs> uh, we could be in Jonah forever. <laughs> so the Bibles that have been passed out would be page 646. And we're going to be in Jonah chapter 4. And uh, we're actually going to be in verses 5 through 11. But I'm going to start reading at chapter 3, verse 10, just to kind of pick us up in the context where we're at. And um, then I'll read through the end of the book. So if you'd stand with me, please, and I'll and follow along as I read. Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. And picking up at verse 10, uh, God through Jonah has spoken to this wicked city of Nineveh that in 40 days, if they don't repent, they will be destroyed. And they humble themselves before God, and that brings us to verse 10. When God saw what they did, meaning the inhabitants of Nineveh, and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry and he prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. Because I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Well, Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city, and there he made himself a shelter. And he sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. And then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And he wanted to die, and he said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I am so angry I wish I were dead. (laughs) Sounds like some of us in our little temper tantrums at times. Verse 10, but the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Let's pray. Father, I, um, 
I pray that you would just use these words and this uh, kind of narrative about Jonah and, and, and who he is as it just exposes him. And Father, that you would use it to reveal us to ourselves and, and what makes us who we are and that we might be uh, individuals that have the same heart that you have uh, for people. So we give this time to you that you teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. We sit down. Well, we definitely have the chosen few who remembered to set their clocks. <laughs> I always like fall the best because then people who didn't set their clocks are, too, are an hour early. <laughs> A mother whose daughter was one of ten children who died when taxi cab driver Jacob Humphreys jumped a train crossing and was hit by an oncoming train does not want him to go to jail. This mother was speaking ahead of Humphreys' sentencing which was expected to take place uh, this past Tuesday in Cape Town, Africa. Ingrid Augus was a lone voice among the victim's parents who want Judge Robert Henney to throw away the key when he sentences Humphreys. But says Ingrid Augus, I don't want Mr. Humphreys to go to jail. She was the mother of Little Rock. That's the name of her child. Uh, the little girl became known as Little Rock after an attack by a family friend who raped and beat her unconscious with a brick and then set her afire six years ago. The mother of Little Rock said, it won't bring Little Rock back. It won't do anything to shout and scream I pray for him. Anyone can make a mistake like that. Humphreys was transporting the children to school on August 25th, 2010, when he overtook a row of waiting cars at the train crossing. Instead of waiting, he zigzagged through the cars, through the closed booms at the crossing as the train was approaching. And the train tore the taxi apart and left a scene rem reminiscent of a war zone. Humphreys, the taxi cab driver, and four children survived the horrific accident. Says Ingrid, I'm a Christian. I have a love of people no matter what they do. God forgives me, so I must forgive them. Mr. Humphreys didn't kill. I didn't hate my child's rapist. So how can I hate Mr. Humphreys? She is saddened by the hate in the other parents' hearts. I understand why they are angry. 
but they need to forgive because forgiveness brings healing. And without forgiveness, the families will never get healed, even when Mr. Humphreys goes to jail. The pain and the hate in their hearts will never go away. And I know a lot of people like that, and you probably do too. The parents of a teen killed in the recent shooting at the Ohio High School cafeteria have also forgiven their son's suspected killer. Phyllis Ferguson, the mother of Chardon High School shooting victim Demetrius Hewlin, told ABC News that if she had the chance to talk to suspected gunman T.J. Lane, I would tell him I forgive him. Because a lot of times, they don't know what they're doing. That's all I'd say. Isn't that amazing? Uh, her, her words echo the words of Jesus on the cross, don't they? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. What makes the difference between having a heart of compassion for people that have done wicked things or having a heart of condemnation and contempt for those people and, and then a heart full of bitterness and hatred? Uh, what makes the difference? Well, I think we find our answer in Jonah. As we come to the story of Jonah right now, and, and we've seen God's compassion for the Ninevites, and, and we've seen Jonah's reluctance to go to proclaim judgment to them because he knows, and he says it in, in, in chapter 4, he just knows that God is a compassionate God. He's slow to anger, and he's, and he's full of loving kindness and compassion. He just knows that God wants to forgive these wicked, evil Ninevites. And then God does. When the Ninevites repent and they humble themselves and they fast and they, they cry out to God for mercy, God pours out upon them compassion. And Jonah's angry. Jonah's angry. As we come to Jonah this one last time, as we're going to pick it up in verse 5 of chapter 4, we see Jonah on a little, little um, camping expedition, don't we? Um, he's not a happy camper, but that's what he's doing. You know, he's, he's gone out and he, he sat down at a place east of the city and he made himself a little camp, a little shelter. And he sat in its shade and he waited to see what God would do. Now, if you've just remember what I just said about the scenario. God had told Jonah, go speak to the Ninevites and tell them 40 days and you will be destroyed. But hearing what God had said through Jonah, they repented. They humbled themselves before God. They, they proclaimed a fast and they cried out to God for mercy. 
And he did. And in the last verse of Jonah chapter 3, it says, and he did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And yet here we have Jonah in his little camp to the east of the city waiting and hoping that God will still destroy them. Isn't that amazing? I mean, to me that would be incredible if I didn't know our hearts <laughs> and how hard it is for us to forgive and have compassion and how we can hold a grudge and be ourselves so full of bitterness that just eats away at us and, and, and destroys us as, as we just want people to pay. And that, that's what Jonah's doing. Jonah knows God's compassion and that God has said he won't destroy the Ninevites. But, but what I'm thinking Jonah is doing here as I ponder this is that Jonah is hoping against hope that despite God's compassion, the Ninevites themselves will sin again. They'll fall into sin. That, that where they had humbled themselves and, and proclaimed a fast and called out to God for mercy, that that's going to quickly turn around, that they're going to start reveling in their sin again, and he's going to be there to see their sin, and God's going to judge them. And that's what he's hoping for. I wonder if some of us are there, there this morning. I mean, somebody that, that has done us wrong, somebody that we're just hoping and waiting that God gives them what's coming their direction. You know, the, the amazing thing about this whole story is that um, Jonah and Israel have received so much compassion from God already. If you remember back in 2 Kings chapter 9, this is the time of Jeroboam II in Israel. He's one of the wicked kings of Israel. And yet, despite his wickedness, for, 40, for 30 years, God expanded the borders of Israel, prevented their destruction in the midst of their wickedness. And Jonah likes that. But he doesn't like God's compassion to the enemy to the Ninevites, to those who have wronged him and his people. Now, Jonah is just being who Jonah is. And that's what, what we want to focus on this morning as we look at these last few verses and kind of this, this little pity party that is taking place to the east of Nineveh. Nineveh as Jonah is in his little campsite is that Jonah is just being who Jonah is. And what I want us to see is that is what makes the difference and why he has so little compassion. What is it that makes the difference in one person being so full of compassion and another person being so full of bitterness and hatred and wanting people to pay? What, what is the difference? What makes the difference? And, and I think we see it here as we come to the end of this book and I hope God uses it in our hearts to, to point out, to expose to us why it might be that we ourselves have so little compassion. I mean, I trust 
that we might be a people. My longing is that we would be a people like God <laughs> who had such a compassion for this wicked city of Nineveh that he sent Jonah there so that 600,000 people on their way to a hopeless eternity could find hope, could find compassion. That that would be what causes our hearts to burn every day as we, as we go through Kitsap County <laughs> from Port Orchard, you know, from Olala to Bremerton to Silverdale to Paulswell to Bainbridge Island, that we would be people with compassion for hurting and broken people. No matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter how bad they are, that we would be people who realize how much compassion God has showed us and, and that compassion then would flow to others. But, but what kind of people does it take to make that kind of people? Well, it doesn't take a Jonah. And he's going to be our bad example, but as we see him, I hope that God would use it to reveal to us the kind of people that God wants us to be. Now, as we come to verse, um, verse 6, as Jonah is camping out, it gets really hot. You've been on a camping trip, and it's hot. It's miserable, right? The, um, and the Ninevites aren't cooperating. You know, they're not, they're not sinning as quickly as he'd hoped they would be. And so, so he's sitting there in, in the intense sun and he's sweating. And, you know, the mosquitoes and the, the flies are beginning to buzz his ears. And, and he's, just, he's just getting miserable. You know, he's starting to get a little sunburned and... He's getting more crotchety and more cranky. And, and he just wants these people to be damned. It's amazing. In the midst of that, God's compassion again. You see that? It says God causes... And, and if you see the... the look at, at um, verse 6. It says, Then the Lord God provided... And then in verse 7, again, it says at dawn the next day, God provided. And then in verse 8, it says God provided. This whole section is filled with God doing something. God doing something to get through to this prophet. It's amazing, God's grace, isn't it? God's compassion to us in our crotchetiness, our bitterness, our anger, our uncompassion. I mean, the extent that God goes through to try and change this prophet's heart. And the first thing he does in verse 6, it says, Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant. And by leafy, we're talking, a, this is a big plant, a broadleaf plant. And he, and he made it to grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And this is obviously miraculous. Because this plant grows up fast and it's huge, it bigs, it's big, it covers the shelter and it gives shade to Jonah's head to ease his discomfort. And, and I, like, I like what it says here. Jonah was very happy about the plant. <laughs> it's great. Jonah was very happy about the plant. Now, why is Jonah happy? It's because it's not hot anymore, right? 
I mean, there's shade. And, 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 and the mosquitoes and the flies are kind of moving away, and, and he's not sweating, and he's not getting a sunburn, and he's happy because he's comfortable. He feels good. We like to feel good, don't we? And this is the question, this is the hard question that we're going to see as we come through the rest of this section. Is that what drives us? Wanting to feel good? Our flesh to feel good? That is what drives Jonah. I just want you to see that up front. That is what drives Jonah, is just feeling good. And that's why he doesn't have a heart of compassion. Because it's all about Jonah feeling good. And Jonah can't feel good if some evil people who have hurt him and his, and his countrymen are left alive. That doesn't make him feel good. That makes him angry and bitter because it's all about Jonah feeling good. And God exposes that. You see how kindly God exposes that to Jonah through this plant? To try and open his eyes to see that Jonah... All you care about is feeling good. And so he's happy right now. But look at verse 7. But at dawn the next day, after a good night's sleep, and, and he's eager to get up the next morning and, and sit in the shade of his plant, cool and comfortable, waiting for Nineveh's destruction. God kind of pulls a fast one on him. Verse 7, at dawn the next day, God, he provided something else, but not exactly what Jonah wanted this time, a worm. Sorry, my mind, it, it just made me think of the Philippines, sorry. <laughs> I'll leave that one, okay? The, um, we lived in the Philippines, but I won't go there about the worms, okay? So verse 7, at dawn the next day, <laughs> Sorry. At dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided something else. A scorching east wind. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he, that he grew faint and he wanted to die and he said it would be better for me to die than to live. Jonah, he's not happy anymore. He's mad about the plant. He's mad about the worm. He's mad about life. He's mad at God. Does that sound familiar? We're so happy. You know, when we feel good. When everything's going our way. And, and then we can feel so happy about everybody else. You know, we just love the world. But as long as we're feeling good. But, but we're not feeling good right now, you know? We got up, we, we made it to work, you know? We, before we made it to work, our car had a flat tire. We're not feeling good right now. We got the tire fixed. We happened to have some fix-a-flat in the trunk, which we were happy about. If the fix-a-flat hadn't been in the trunk or hadn't worked, we wouldn't be happy right now. We'd be mad. But we make it to work, and... And somebody gave us kind of that look, you know, like, didn't make me feel good. 
What's, what's their problem? And the printer didn't work at work. Or there's a lot of work to do, so we have to work through our lunch break. And I'm not feeling good right now. So that's Jonah. He's, he's not feeling good. He's mad about the plan. He's mad about the worm. He's mad about life. And so he doesn't want to live anymore. So why? Because it doesn't feel good anymore. Sound familiar? So God gets to the point, and this is the point in verses 10 and 11. And it's a powerful point. And God, God says, you know, this has all been an object lesson for you, Jonah, to try and open your eyes to the, to the kind of person you are and why you don't have compassion for 600,000 miserable people, lost people, hurting people, broken people. The Lord God said in verse 10, you have been com- concerned about this plant. Though you did not tend it or make it to grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. It's just, this, it's just a plant, Jonah. Here today and gone tomorrow. It's just a plant. Not that we shouldn't care about plants, okay? But it's just a plant. Verse 11, and should not I have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 kids who don't know the difference between their right hand and their left hand, over 600,000 people, maybe a million people in this city. Should I not care about them? Eternal souls, not just temporary plants, but eternal souls and many animals. Wow. How kindly God exposes Jonah's and our fleshliness. That's that's the heart of this here. What keeps us from having compassion that what we really live for, and I want us to ask ourselves this, is is not what we really live for so much of the time, what makes us feel good? What determines what we really care about? What we choose to do or not to do? How to spend our money or not to spend our money? In our attempt to be the happiest that we can be. Ask yourself, just, I I want you to ask yourself right now, What am I really living for? I I shared a few months ago what startled me when I first saw it, but then as I thought about it, I thought, this person is just boldly stating how most of us live. It was on the T-shirt of a psychiatrist at KMH, and this was many years ago, maybe 20 years ago, as I was there to visit somebody that I knew, and emblazoned on the front of his t-shirt was the words, I live for lust. Kind of shocked me. Psychiatrist, doctor, you know, I live for lust. But then as I thought about it, I said, I thought, isn't that what most people live for? 
just to feel good? Ask, ask yourself that right now. What are you really living for? Fleshly comfort? This morning, let me, let me just ask you a question. When you got up this morning, um, and his, his name escapes me right now, orphanages in England, George Mueller. He said that when he gets up in the morning, when he got up in the morning, he's with the Lord now, he said, my determination is to spend time in the word in order to make my soul happy before the Lord. Is that what happened when you got up this morning? A determination that your soul would become happy, your spirit would become happy, so that as you went through the day, it was a happy soul in right relationship with God that would lead you through the day. And man, just think about the difference that would make. I mean, it makes a difference to my wife how my soul is. If I have a happy soul or if I'm just living to have a happy body. Did you wake up this morning determined to spend time with the Lord so that your soul would be happy? Or was the most important thing when you got up this morning to make sure your body was happy? That's just a, just a little indication of what do we live for? To cultivate relationship with God, healthy spirits, or happy bodies? Uh, what do we really live for? A nice retirement? An easy life? To be comfortable? What does your time, your money, your energy go to? Your fleshly comfort? Or the salvation of eternal souls? I'd like to read you just a couple of little vignettes of individuals um, and what they live for. Th these are great testimonies. The first is John Wesley. Heard of John Wesley? He was used by God along with his brother Charles and George Whitfield and, and others like them uh, to be a part of the Second Great Awakening. And God, through them, brought millions of people uh, into the kingdom of God. John Wesley traveled on horseback, preaching two or three times each day. He rode in his lifetime on horseback. Now, our Honda has 300,000 miles on it, but it didn't, didn't, wasn't too hard on me, okay? John Wesley rode on horseback 250,000 miles in his lifetime, preaching two or three times a day. He gave away 30,000 pounds. Now, that's not his weight, okay? Um, that, that was, that's money, Eng English money, okay, for those of you that aren't aware of that. In his lifetime, he gave away 30,000 pounds, which in today's money would be $47,000. Multiply that by about 100 times, okay? And that's what John Wesley gave away in his lifetime. He preached more than 40,000 sermons. He formed societies. He opened chapels. He examined and commissioned preachers. He administered aid charities. 
He superintended schools and orphanages. When he died on March 2nd, 1791, when he was 87 years old, as he lay dying, his friends gathered around him. He grasped their hands and he said repeatedly, farewell, farewell. The best of all is God is with us. He lifted his arms, he raised his feeble voice again, and his last words were, the best of all is God is with us. When he died, he died poor. The result of his life's work, 135,000 members of the Methodist Church, 541 preachers, millions of others that came into the kingdom of God. But when he was carried to his grave, what he left behind was a good library of books, a well-worn clergyman's gown, and the Methodist church. That's it. He gave away the rest. He didn't live for lust to feel good, but man, what a difference his life made. What difference is your life making? It depends on what you're living for. Samuel Swamer, one more. He was nicknamed the Apostle to Islam. He was a, min a missionary in Bahrain, Egypt, and other locations in Arabia for 40 years. He married Amy Elizabeth Wilkes on May 18, 1896. They had two daughters. And within just a few years, ministering to resistant people in unbearable heat. He lost his wife and his two daughters to disease. He founded and edited the publication The Muslim World for 35 years. He was one of the most influential individuals in mobilizing Christians to become missionaries around the world and most particularly in Islamic countries. His converts when he died after 40 years were less than a dozen. But his assessment at the end of his life, the sheer delight of it all comes back to me. The sheer delight of it all comes back to me. Would such a life give you delight? What is it that delights you? Make sure you get your three meals a day, your retirement's doing well, everybody's treating you well, no flat tires on the way to work. What made these men such men and what will make us such individuals who live for the salvation of eternal souls like the Ninevites as opposed to being concerned about a plant? What makes us feel good? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I just want to end with a couple of things. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, the love of Christ compels me. Is that what compels you? Is that what compels us? The love of Christ. 
the love of Christ so dominates. We are so amazed by what, by the love that Christ has showed us on the cross. We are so astounded by it and amazed by it that that Jesus would die for me. That Jesus would go to the cross for me. I'm so amazed by it. I'm compelled by it. It is what dominates me. It is what drives me. It is not my flesh. The love of Christ compels me. Number one, and then in Philippians 3, 17 through 21, and I'm going to read these verses as I, as I end, that this is what compels me. Philippians 3, listen to these verses. And, and as Paul writes these words to the Philippian church, you're going to see he writes it with tears. Because he's writing to individuals that he knows are so compelled, not by the love of Christ, but by their fleshly appetites. Listen, he says, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Keep your eyes on people like Samuel Swamer and John Wesley. Get your eyes off of movie stars and movie actors and, and professional athletes who, whose lives are lived for last. And we put them up as our models and say, man, that's life. It's not life. Their lives are devastated by divorce and drug overdoses and they're miserable. It's not life. And yet we have them as our models, don't we? Why in the world do we have them as our models? They're living for lust and their lives are in shambles as a result. Set our eyes on people who live like John Wesley's and Samuel Swamer's. Read missionary biographies. Read the testimonies that are in Hebrews chapter 11, the, the, the hallmark of, the, the, the hall of fame of faith. Then verse 18, for as I have often told you before and now tell you even again with tears. This is Paul weeping as he writes. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. What makes them feel good. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. Is that what you live for? Is that what compels us? Eternity? <laughs> not not. not not what is so fleeting, what's going to be gone. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. What is it that compels us? Is it the love of Christ? And what he's done for us on the cross, is it eternity? And if it's those things, then we will be people of compassion. But I encourage us to ask ourselves, if we're not people of compassion, is it because of what we're really living for? What really compels us? Oh, please, Jesus, open our eyes to what is 
eternal. To what can only give true happiness. Capture our hearts with your love, Jesus. That we might be in this world the compassionate people that this world desperately needs. Let's pray. Father, uh, do, a, do a work in our hearts, I pray. Uh, Father, I acknowledge my own heart and how I can so easily wake up and, and, and walk through a day, and, and it's just about Dave. It's just about what make, makes Dave feel good. And, and when I walk through a day like that, how little my, my heart is compassionate towards other. I'm just wanting to, people to care about me. Think about me and, and make me feel good. Oh, God, open our hearts. Expose our selfishness. Expose our fleshliness. Father, open our eyes to your love, to your mercy, to your compassion. Father, soften our hearts break our hearts. Open our eyes to what matters, to eternity. Father, give us hearts that beat like your heart. In Jesus' name, amen.